How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this privilege and opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word. We thank you that your word is absolute truth, that it is without error, that it guides and directs us in every area of our thinking. Father, now as we continue our study in Genesis, we pray that you would help us to understand the uh, significance of the things we study, their implications both for history and for the spiritual life, that we may be able to utilize these things in in our own lives and apply them as we uh, have a walk by faith that follows and imitates the example of Noah. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, you can open your Bibles with me to Genesis 6. Genesis 6, 9 down through 9, 29 is the next section. Now let me remind you, because it's been a while since we've done this, let me remind you that in this series I'm looking at things in two or three different uh, ways. One way we're looking at this is in terms of the basic structure of Genesis, in terms of the ten Toledot sections. Now, I remind you that the word Toledot is a Hebrew word, looks something like this, T-O-L-E-D-O-T, from the root Yalad, Y-A-L-A-D, meaning to give birth. So it has the idea of generation or record. And it is used as a structural marker in the book of Genesis in order to uh, mark out different sections over the uh, over the history of the book. It's my opinion that each one of these Toledotes represents certain records that were kept by different patriarchs. And then Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, took information from these records that he had available to him and incorporated those together, edited them down, and wrote the book of Genesis. Now, we have to be reminded a little bit about this structure. And I put together a chart that we'll have up here on the on the overhead of the ten Toledotes in Genesis, this is a structure. Now, what I'm doing is at the beginning of each of these Toledot sections, which are normally translated, this is the record of, or this is the generation of. In Genesis 6-9, we have this is the generation, or this is the record of, of Noah, the generations of Noah. And you could, you could generally, uh, translate this or paraphrase this to mean, this is what happened to the descendants of so-and-so. And it, you have a Toledot at the beginning of each section in Genesis. So what I'm doing is 
taking each toledote and at the beginning of that section giving a summary of what's in that section, the key doctrines that are covered in that section. And one of the reasons I'm doing that is because prep school teachers and others may come along and want to do a series on Genesis, not have time to cover 300 or 400 tapes in a series, but they can pull out these what I'm calling A-level tapes or summary tapes, and there will be uh, 11 of those or maybe 10 of them because a couple of the toledotes are fairly short and can uh, then get an overview of the structure of, of Genesis and the key doctrines that need to be taught in each particular section. So we have 10 toledotes in Genesis. The first section in Genesis is not a toledote. It is the introduction or preamble to the book, and that is the creation narrative in 1, 1 to 2, 3, and this covers 34 verses. Now, today I sat down and I thought, well, seems to me like this toledote for Noah is the longest toledote section we've had so far. So let me add up some verses and see what the proportion is. One of the laws of, of Bible study is to look at the law of proportion. If the Holy Spirit takes one verse to talk about something and a hundred verses to talk about something else, then guess what's more important? So there's a, a rule there for hermeneutics called the law of proportion. And so we're going to see some of that at play in this structure. So the first section of Genesis is the introduction, the creation narrative 1, 1 to 2, 3, the creation in 1, 1, and restoration of 1, 2 down to 2, 3. The second section, or the first Toledot, is the Toledot, or this is what happened to the uh, descendants of the heavens and the earth, uh, 2, 4 down to 4, 26, and that consisted of 72 verses. Now, this is the period that, that covers the creation of man, the creation of the woman, the institution of volition and uh, marriage, all covered in that section, as well as the fall, the curse, and the first murder with Cain and Abel. And that whole section is covered in only 72 verses. Then the second Toledo, these are the generations, or this is what happened to the descendants of Adam, uh, begins in 5.1 and extends down through 6.8, and this covered 40 verses. 40 verses, and the vast majority of that in chapter 5 are the, the genealogy, the genealogical records of the descendants of Adam through Seth. Now, we are in the third Toledot section, which is the generation of, of uh, and the records of the descendants of Noah, and this is 6.9 to 929. That covers the flood episode. Now, one of the reasons I did this is because so many people, especially if you come out of a liberal background where you want to somehow uh, play down the significance of the flood, or you may think that the flood is just some nice story about some biblical Dr. Doolittle who had a bunch of animals and put them on a boat and floated around a a localized flood a little bit. Uh, this section covers 89 verses. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which is really the introduction to the book, the book itself focuses on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the introduction is the first 11 chapters. And in these first 11 chapters, this is the longest section. 89 verses devoted to Noah. That means that in terms of proportion, this is not just some secondary story that, that just got inserted into the text. Under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, the writer is emphasizing what took place 
uh, in Noah's life. And, of course, this will be emphasized when we come later on to look at how this is used in Hebrews 11:7, which says that by faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So what we see in Hebrews 11 is the spiritual application or doctrinal application for the believer in the church age. This does not in any way take away from the historicity of Noah, but says that Noah is clearly an example that it is by means of doctrine, that is what he believed uh, because of his trust in the content of God's revelation, was warned by God because he had been warned by God about things not yet seen. In other words, it was going to rain and he had never seen rain before. And uh, reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. And the key word there is salvation. That is what this is all about as a picture. We have the creation as a picture of God as the creator and emphasizing the creator-creature distinction. Then the next event was the was the fall, and that indicates man's uh, condition, his condemnation, and then uh, Noah is about salvation and deliverance as well as judgment. So Hebrews 11:7, by faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So before we're done, we're going to have to go to Hebrews and exegete that verse and see how that uh, pulls the episode with Noah uh, into into application for the church age. But this is an important, critical episode in the Old Testament. You can't just skip over it. The fourth Toledote, comes up in chapters 10.1 down to 11.9, the generations. This is what happened to the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and that is also known as the Table of Nations. The fifth Toledot gives you the descent of Shem, the generations of Shem, 11.10 to 11.26, and then that ends the introduction at 11.26. 1.1 to 11.26 forms the first section of this book. And then we get into the major part of the book, and the first Toledot is the Toledot of Terah. That's Abram's uh, father, 1127 to 2511. And that covers 377 verses. So you see all of a sudden the emphasis shifts. Everything up to that point is under 100, and now it jumps to uh, 377 verses. The seventh Toledot is that of Ishmael, uh, 2512 uh, through, looks like that dropped off. Looks like that should be 2512 to 18. 2512 to 18, I've got, I just slipped my 8 over. 2512 to 18, that covers 7 verses, so the descent of Ishmael is relatively insignificant by comparison. Then we have the 8th Toledot of Isaac, 2519 to 3529, 354 verses. And then we have the Ninth Toledot, that of Esau, Genesis 36.1 to 37.1, 43 verses. And then the final Toledot is that of Jacob, what happens to the descendants of Jacob, which includes the, uh, the twelve sons, especially Joseph, and that's covered in 37 verse 2 to 50.26, obviously the largest section of the book, 414 verses. So if you just look at proportionality, you see that 
in the first section, Noah gets the largest chunk of verses. And in the second section, which deals with the patriarchs of Israel and the foundation of the, uh, of the, of the, of the, uh, family of Israel, ethnic Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it is, uh, Abra- actually Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their descendants that have the lion's share of those verses. So this tells us that Noah is not to be taken lightly. This is a very important section in the book of Genesis. Now, one of the ways that we can look at the structure here is to see that the author puts it together in a literary form known as a chiasm. I'll explain that in a minute. A chiasm is a way of structuring a way of structuring your material so that you emphasize that which comes in the middle of the chiasm. Chiasm is spelled C-H-I-A-S-M from the Greek letter key that looks like an X. So here we're just going to get a brief outline and structure of Genesis 6-9 to 9-29. The main idea here is a contrast between Noah's righteousness and its consequences and the world's corruption and its consequences. See, volition has consequences. You make good decisions from a position of strength, trusting God, and there's blessing. You make wrong decisions on the basis of negative volition, and the result is cursing. That's our theme in Genesis, blessing and cursing. So there's the blessing on Noah, there's the cursing on the world and the judgment of, uh, of the worldwide flood. So the first part, Genesis 6, 11 to 13, is God resolves to destroy the corrupt race. The emphasis is on the corruption of the human race. The Hebrew word there for corruption is used three times in that section. Then the next section, B, and we indent that one 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 tab. Noah builds an ark according to God's specifications, and that's in 6:14 to 22. Then the third paragraph, the Lord commands the remnant, that is Noah, his wife, the three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives to enter the ark along with the animals, and that is in chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Then the fourth paragraph, chapter 7, verses 10 through 16, is the beginning of the flood. The beginning of the flood, Genesis 7, 10 through 16. And then the fifth paragraph, the flood prevails for 150 days, and the mountains are covered by the waters. That's in 7, 17 through 24. And then we come to the center point. God remembers Noah in 8, 1. Now, each of these points, A, B, C, D, E, and F, if you can't, if you, uh, can't see this, remember there are tapers out there who can't see the visual. Each one of these is indented another tab from the one before so that there's a slanted line, A through F. And then you start going back out. And you come to E prime. Now notice how E prime parallels the paragraph E. 7, 17 through 24. The flood prevails 150 days and the mountains are covered. But in 8, 1b through 5, we see the recession of the flood for 150 days and the mountains become visible. You see, as we back out of this now, starting in 8, 1b, 
There is a mirror reflection of what goes before. See, you can't come along and look at this and then say, well, this was cobbled together from two or three different sources. You may not remember this. It was almost a year ago. But I taught in the introduction to Genesis about mosaic authorship and that liberal theology came along in the early part of the 19th century and claimed that these books were not written by Moses at all, but they were written by several different redactors. On the one hand, you had a guy who had a preference for the name Yahweh or Jehovah, and so that was the J writer. Then you had a second writer who had a predilection for the name Elohim, so he was called the E writer. And then you had a Deuteronomic uh, writer that came along. He was more of a legalist, and he's called the D writer. And then you had a priest who brought in certain sections, and he is called the priest, priestly redactor. And then a, re, then a final editor came along and just sort of put all this together. And if you read liberal commentaries, what they do is they come along and try to uh, chop this up and say, okay, well, let's find the J author, let's find the E author, and then they write commentaries on those different sections, and it's it's uh, absolutely ridiculous when you examine the text in light of what I'm doing here, which shows that there is an in- integral unity in the text demonstrating that there was one author who put this together, and it is a masterful literary construction. So E prime... Mirrors E, eight, paragraph 8, 1B to 5, the flood recedes for 150 days. Then the next paragraph, which we'll call D prime, mirrors D. D prime, it covers 8, 6 to 14. And here the earth dries out. See, that mirrors D that we had previously, chapter uh, 7, verses 10 to 16, The flood begins. Here the flood is ending. The earth dries out. The next paragraph is C prime. God commands the remnant to leave the ark. 8, 15 to 19. This parallels 7, 1 through 9 when God commanded the remnant to enter the ark. And then the next paragraph B, Noah builds an altar, uh, 8, 20. Noah builds an altar. This is parallel to Noah building an ark according to God's specifications. Noah builds an altar according to God's specifications in 8.20. And then the final paragraph in 8.21-22, the Lord resolves to not destroy mankind by water. And that parallels 6.11-13, God resolves to destroy the corrupt race. So this covers uh, six Chapters, the rest of chapter 6, 7, and 8 down through the end of the flood narrative. Then we get into the, the final sections dealing with the sacrifice and the Noahic covenant, uh, down into chapter 9. So this gives us a structure and this is called a chiasm because as you lay this out, we'll put an X over it and that shows us the pattern. And it's that centerpiece right there at the, at the point which we call paragraph F, God remembers Noah in 8.1a. That's the focal point of the narrative. And that's what the author is drawing our attention to. Remember, in Hebrew narrative, God is always the hero. We tend to look at it in terms of the individual human heroes, but in Hebrew narrative, when you're teaching this, if you teach Old Testament stories in prep school, remember, God's always the hero of every narrative, not the individual human. But it's always God that's the hero in Hebrew narrative. 
Well, as we look at this section from 6.9 down to 9.29, the key idea through this section is God's grace which precedes judgment, His judgment on mankind, and His salvation or deliverance by grace. So the flood episode teaches uh, grace, it teaches judgment, and it teaches salvation. Those are the doctrinal emphases in this section. So the first thing I want to cover by way of introduction and overview to this Toledot is the principle of grace before judgment. Grace before judgment. Point number one, before every divine judgment throughout human history, God always gives mankind a period of grace in which to be saved. God always precedes judgment with grace. He does this in terms of nations. He does it in terms of individuals. He does it in our own personal spiritual lives. Before he lowers the boom in divine discipline, he will precede that with grace to give us an opportunity to rebound, an opportunity to confess our sins, an opportunity to start uh, getting back in fellowship and walking by the Holy Spirit. So before every divine judgment throughout history, God gives man a period of grace in which to be saved. And at this particular time, there was a 120-year period of intense evangelism uh, before the judgment of the flood. And this happens again and again and again. Actually, what happens throughout history is that God gives grace, man rejects it. God gives grace and an arrogance. Man thinks he's going to get away with whatever it is he's getting away with. And all he does is intensify the judgment that eventually comes his way. Arrogance always seems to blind us into thinking that somehow God is missing whatever rebellion is going on in our life. So God always gives us grace. He precedes uh, every act of judgment with grace. Second point. There never has been a time in history when mankind did not have the opportunity to believe in Christ. Whatever the dispensation was, if it was the antediluvian period, there was a a period of time there for them to respond to the gospel as it was in that dispensation. And remember, in the Old Testament period, the gospel always anticipated deliverance, looked forward to the promised seed of the woman, and that was the focal point of salvation. So God has always given people an opportunity to believe. Just because we don't know how the gospel got around, just because we don't have historical records, doesn't mean the gospel did not make its way to many different nations. In fact, from the little bit of evidence that we do have since the uh, in the New Testament era, we know that the gospel has made it a lot of places. And we know that during the Roman Empire, you not only had... Uh, Roman soldiers taking the gospel from Judea to wherever it was they were located. But you had people like the Ethiopian eunuch who was saved and went to Ethiopia and took the gospel. You had apostles who went to India, went to North Africa, went up into uh, the area north of the Black Sea and what is currently Russia. You had uh, apostles who went into Babylon and their converts took the gospel even further. So we have no idea how quickly the gospel made its way around the world after Christ was crucified, and that is grace. God always provides grace before judgment. The third point, God's grace before judgment prior to the fall. 
God granted the human race 120 years of warning, according to Genesis 6-3. 120 years of hearing Noah proclaim the gospel. And there were others. Remember, Methuselah doesn't die until just before the fall. So there were others in that line of descent who were believers who were also proclaiming the gospel. Noah was not the only one, but all of the others were older and they would have died physically prior to the flood. But I believe that initially there were others until it finally uh, reduced itself to only Noah and his sons. And, of course, as Hebrews 11.7 points out, not only did Noah uh, proclaim the gospel verbally, but the fact that he and his sons were building the ark was a visual statement of condemnation on that antediluvian civilization. Fourth, in the Old Testament, the prophets warned the Jews about the approaching judgments of 722 B.C. when the Assyrians took out the northern kingdom of Israel and they warned the southern kingdom about the judgment of Babylon coming in 586 B.C. In fact, a hundred years earlier, Isaiah was uh, prophesying about the approaching judgment of the Babylonian defeat. Fifth, Jesus warned the Jews in Matthew 24 about the coming judgment for rejecting him as Messiah. They were warned about the uh, Roman armies coming and destroying Jerusalem in Matthew 24. So again, we see an example of grace preceding judgment. Point number six, every person has adequate testimony to the existence of God prior to death. Romans 1.20 says, so that they are without excuse. That tells us that that every human being has grace, common grace to believe the gospel, common grace that presents clear evidence that God exists. His invisible attributes are made clear in the heavens. But man rejects that and suppresses the truth uh, by means of unrighteousness. And then seventh, in the tribulation period, the gospel will be proclaimed as never before in human history, and there will be numerous warnings. There will be grace even in the judgment. And grace during the first three and a half years, there will be the uh, proclamation of the gospel by the two witnesses and by angels, and yet man will reject that, and the result is the intensified discipline and judgment of the last half of the tribulation. Well, that gives us the overview of grace before judgment. The main idea of Genesis 6 through 9, therefore, is God's judgment on the corrupt human race and his deliverance of Noah. And in that section, we see that God designs a plan of deliverance. He is the one who specifies how you will be delivered. It's not left up to man to come up with his ideas on how he will be saved, but God defines and God discriminates in his judgment. And this is something that goes completely against the grain for the unbeliever. He wants God to be very broad, and yet God says there's only one way of salvation, and that's the ark. And he gave specific plans about the ark's construction. There was only one door going into the ark, which is a uh, picture of the fact that there is only one way to salvation. And that is through Jesus Christ who himself, who described himself as the door. 
Well, one of the biggest problems that we have today is a challenge to the historicity of Noah. People today want to think of this as just another myth. This is just an ancient legend, just another story. And yet, if you look at the Bible, what we will see is that throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, there is clear affirmation of the historical existence of Noah and the judgment of the flood. Let's look at some of these passages. Isaiah 54.9. Isaiah 54.9 says, For this is like the days of Noah to me when I swore, so God is speaking here, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, God is giving a historical warning to Israel in Isaiah 54, and he is drawing an analogy to the judgment at the time of Noah. Now, if Noah wasn't a historically a, a, a historical incident, then that would invalidate the analogy. God points to Noah. Second thing is that in God's statement, He is indicating that the flood was global. It was not some local flood that occurred down in the Tigris Euphrates uh, drainage basin. Neither was it a local flood that occurred when the Black Sea overflowed, which is a recent theory that's been set forth by a number of uh, uh, archaeologists. And we'll see why it has to be a universal flood and can't be a local flood. And if you take the position that it's a local flood, eventually you, your your whole system is going to collapse into some sort of accommodation with evolution. And that is what happens. You have to take this as universal. Otherwise, you're destroying the historicity of the text. And it affects numerous other doctrines. You can't just come in here and start tweaking Scripture and think you can get away with it. And that's the point of this section that I'm covering now on the importance of the historicity of Noah. Isaiah 54, the judgment that God announces, is, is made an, is, uh, analogous to the judgment at the time of Noah. And God clearly states that he swore that at the at that time that he would not flood the earth again. So that indicates a worldwide judgment. Ezekiel 14.14 and 14.20 also emphasize uh, the historicity of Noah. There, Ezekiel writes, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves. In other words, Noah, Daniel, and Job were considered three of the most righteous men in the ancient world, and Ezekiel is making the comment that even if they were present in Jerusalem, their righteousness would not cause God to delay his judgment of Jerusalem. This is reiterated in Ezekiel 14.20. Even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst as I lived, declared the Lord God, they could not deliver either their son or the daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. So these two passages treat Noah as a historical individual. Then we get into the New Testament. And Jesus compared the the second coming and the, the characteristics of the earth earth civilizations at the time of the second coming to the way it was at the time of Noah. Matthew 24:37 for the coming of the son of man will be just like the days of Noah. Once again if Noah isn't a historically accurate figure then this becomes a meaningless statement. Luke 3:36 which contains the which is part of the genealogy for the Lord Jesus Christ which we'll be covering in some detail this Sunday morning 
we see that Noah is located in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, the liberal critic comes along and says, this is just all made up. Uh, this is a pious, hist- a pious sham, so to speak. It's just written to somehow give validation to Jesus Christ, but has no uh, ground in history. But we will see when we get to Genesis 10 and 11 that there is a tremendous basis for the historicity of the table of nations. And it's uh, fascinating to see how many ancient genealogies that were written prior to uh, any any knowledge of the gospel, any knowledge of the Bible. You go back to ancient uh, Irish documents, ancient uh, uh, Scandinavian genealogies that precede any any knowledge of Genesis, and they have ancient uh, genealogies that go all the way back to uh, Japheth and to Noah. And their, those genealogies, while they have uh, different problems with them, which we'll get into when we get to that study, they confirm the genealogy of the Bible in, in every way. So these are not something that just made up to give some sort of fake validation to the Lord Jesus Christ. His genealogy validates who he is. Luke 17.26 is a parallel passage to Matthew 24.37. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man, that is, the second coming. But just think, if it didn't happen that way in the days of Noah, if that's just myth, if that's not historically accurate, then it basically destroys any real application here. All you end up with is is uh, meaningless verbiage. And then Hebrews 11.7 by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen. So the writer of Hebrews treats Noah as a historical individual and the flood as a historical event. And then Peter has two verses, one in First Peter, one in Second Peter, which validate the historicity of Noah. Talking about that generation and the fallen angels, he says, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah... During the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So at that point, Peter is making a doctrinal point, doctrinal application, based on the historical veracity of the existence of Noah. And again, in Second Peter 2.5, in Second Peter 2.5, uh, which reads, and did not, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So here we see numerous verses from Old and New Testament, which base doctrine on the historical veracity of Genesis and the existence of Noah. So we can see from these events that the teachings of both the Old and New Testament are grounded on certain historical events having taken place literally and actually. What we realize is that this runs counter to the assumptions of modern modern religious liberalism. And for the last 300 years since the Enlightenment, the first 11 chapters of Genesis have been under assault for their historical veracity. And the idea of modern man is that you can have religious truth that's divorced from history. The Bible doesn't need to be inerrant. They say, in fact, there's all kinds of historical, cultural, scientific errors. But that doesn't, that doesn't affect the truth, the, the spiritual truths that are there. And that's just garbage. 
the Bible more than any other philosophy or religious system in the history of the world has such a tight connection between the doctrines of of its beliefs, uh, the doctrines of the Scripture, and the, their historical foundation, that if you destroy the historical validity of these doctrines, the doctrines themselves are destroyed. You can't have the doctrines without their historical uh, situation. You can't just come along and take your razor blade and separate the history of the Bible from the spiritual truths of the Bible. The Bible just doesn't allow that. You cannot divorce, quote, religious truth from history. This means you can't have a biblical faith without also having a historically, scientifically, and biologically and philosophically inerrant Bible. You cannot have a biblical faith without believing in biblical inerrancy. If the Bible is not inerrant in everything that it touches on, then you cannot have a biblical faith. There has to be historical integrity. And this is unique among all of the world's uh, so-called religions. You think about uh, Confucianism. It's mostly uh, ethical sayings and, and uh, practical precepts, but it's not based on events in Chinese history. You can, you can change your whole understanding of Chinese history, and it wouldn't affect anything in Confucianism. Same thing with Hinduism. There is nothing in Hinduism that is predicated upon any event having taken place in the history of India. But everything in the Old Testament is based upon certain things having happened in the history of Israel and the history of the world prior to the call of Abraham. And the same thing is true of the New Testament. In fact, Paul makes a point that if the resurrection didn't happen, as uh, as it's described in the Gospels, a physical, bodily, historical resurrection of Christ, then we are the most deceived of all people. And there is no Christianity without the resurrection. There is no Christianity if, it is, if the Bible is not historically accurate. So that is one of the reasons why it's important to go into all of these historical issues and to show why the Bible is valid, why these, why these assaults are not true. We live in an era when the Bible is constantly under attack by people who say that these things just just aren't true. You can turn on the television and see how how liberal ideas are crammed down your throat. You watch any of these religious programs on uh, A&E Channel, any of these things on D- D- Discovery Channel, and they are loaded with liberal presuppositions. Their whole view of hi- the historicity of the Old Testament is loaded with... with uh, with liberal presuppositions, the dates they use. Now, most of you aren't adept enough, adept enough in all of this to to recognize that. But I'm, you know, somewhat trained in all of this and read fairly widely in this. And I can just hear that they assign a certain date to some king in the Old Testament. I instantly know that they've just screwed everything up. And yet, that's so subtle because the untrained ear, who is not uh, not knowledgeable about all of these uh, chronological issues and historical issues, just thinks this all sounds well and good. I, 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 don't they have all these experts on there from all these different schools who've written all these books, uh, making all of these claims? And yet, what undergirds all of it is a basic assault on the historicity of the scriptures. What we have to realize is that underneath all of this is the importance of the creator 
creature distinction. And that really comes to play in the uh, Noah narrative because it is here that we see that God has the right to dictate terms to his creatures. He has the right to hold us accountable to behavioral standards. He will hold us accountable. Here we see that sin is abnormal and destructive and that the creature will eventually be judged, that God is a God who interferes in human history, and man, the rebellious creature, doesn't want a God who's going to interfere in his life. I mean, that's the last thing we want is a God that's going to judge us on the basis of our uh, behavior, on the basis of positive or negative volition. And that is because man, ever since the fall, wants to absolve himself of any accountability. He wants to claim that, well, it's not my fault, it's the serpent's fault. We're all just victimized. And yet, if this is historically true, then what these events tell us is that man is constitutionally at fault. He is volitionally at fault. He makes decisions to reject the Creator, and God will hold him accountable. And on the other side, we see that uh, the biblical view of salvation emphasized here that God, as the Creator, does interfere in human history, but He interferes, first of all, with grace, and He provides a solution to the problem, and He provides salvation. And that is always the issue. God's grace precedes judgment, and He always gives mankind enough of an opportunity to, to respond. Now, the big issue that comes along here as we look at this whole narrative on the flood is, is this a a local flood or is this a universal flood? A local flood or a universal flood? And one of the things that you should always listen for is how somebody interprets the flood. You get various people, progressive creationists like uh, Hugh Ross is very popular today. He's on some of the religious channels. He's a... a physicist who does not interpret the days of Genesis 1 as literal 24-hour days, but they're long periods of time. And he also comes along and wants to make the flood a local flood. And this, you, these, these are things that tend to go hand in hand. Once you start compromising with evolution at one point, you will end up compromising at many other points. And it basically boils down to problems of interpretation and problems of hermeneutics that people just don't want to take the Bible literally because it somehow runs against some uh, presupposition, some assumption that they have that, uh, that science has given them accurate information about the age of the earth and the age of the universe. That's why I spend so much time at the end of Genesis 1 going through those technical lessons on why there are problems with the dating methods of, of uh, uh, modern science. Is The whole issue here is they're trying desperately to come up with these extensive periods of time in order to uh, prove their position that all of this just happened through natural processes. So the question we have to ask is, is this flood local or universal? And we're, I'm going to approach this from three different lines of evidence. The first line of evidence is going to be asking certain questions of the text itself and uh, the details in the text. The second approach will be to look at particular words that are used in the text. And then third, I'm going to offer three specific arguments that are based 
uh, on other other grounds other than the specific words of the text. Okay, what do I mean by by questions? Well, let's let's look at the details of the text itself. First of all, if the flood was local, why did Noah have to build an ark in the first place? I mean, if you think about the dimensions of the ark, this is an enormous ship, a barge that was not uh, that uh, a ship that was not equaled in size until about 1856. Modern man did not build a ship equivalent to the size of the ark until the late 1850s. In fact, let me see. I think I can skip down here to another picture that I have that will give you an idea of the size uh, size of the ark. Let me see where it's slide 12. Let me go all the way to the end. There we go. There's the ark next to a school bus. Now, that gives you an idea of the proportion of the size of Noah's ark. This was a huge ship, and it had more than enough room. We'll get into the details of the construction next time and the details of its capacity, but uh, according to most studies and most from, from creationists who want to give as much as they can, uh, they would... A study of all the different kinds in Genesis, there were probably no more than 16,000 animals on the ark. That means that less than half the space of the ark was taken up by the animals, and so there was plenty of room in the rest of the ark for food and water and for the provisions for the eight humans on board. So the ark is quite, quite capacious and plenty of room there for all of the animals. So if the flood was just a local flood, why did Noah have to build an ark for all these animals? Why did he have to build such an enormous ark? He could have easily walked to the other side of the mountains and missed the flood completely. He had 120 years. You know, you can walk a long way in 120 years. Okay, if the flood was local, second point, why did God send the animals to the ark so they would escape death? There would have been other animals to, redu- to reproduce that kind if those particular ones had died. Those animals just could have migrated another 100 miles, and they would have been out of danger, even if they had to migrate a 1,000 miles. In 120 years, they could have done it. Third, if the flood was local, why was the ark big enough to hold all the kinds of land vertebrate animals that have ever existed? Why was it, why did it have to be so large? If only the local Mesopotamian animals were threatened, the ark could have been much smaller. So the ark is large enough to have carried animals of every kind that had ever existed. And we'll get into an understanding of what a kind is. I mentioned this when we went through Genesis 1, 1, that a kind is not equivalent to a species. In fact, uh, it's probably broader than genus and may be even as large as a family. It is much broader than, uh, than species. If it was species, then it would have, would have not only had problems, but there are a number of other reasons why species is too na- narrow. Fourth question, I think. If the flood was local, why would birds have been sent on board? The birds could simply have flown across to a nearby mountain range. They didn't need to be on the ark. They could have uh, flown out of harm's way. Next, if the flood was local, how could the waters rise to a height of 15 cubits? That's about oh, 21, 22 feet above the mountains. That's Genesis 7:20. How could the waters rise to a height of 15 cubits 
above all the mountains. Now, we'll look at that in a little more detail in a minute. We have to remember that water seeks its own level, and it couldn't rise to cover the local mountains unless, I mean, and leave the rest of the world untouched. If it was going to cover all the mountains in the uh, watershed of the Tigris and Euphrates, then it would cover many other mountains as well. So that doesn't make sense. Next, if the flood was local, it would not have solved the problem of the corruption of the human race worldwide. You see, that's the problem that's identified in Genesis 6. Number one, you have the intrusion of the Nephilim and the corruption of the uh, genetic makeup of the human race. Then you have the the moral corruption of the human race. This is a worldwide problem. It wasn't just some problem with the folks who were living in the Mesopotamian area. It was a worldwide problem necessitating a worldwide judgment, a worldwide solution. A local flood doesn't fit the uh, problem. Next, if the flood was local, People who did not happen to be living in the vicinity wouldn't be affected by it. In other words, all these other people around the earth would not be affected. It would only wipe out the local inhabitants of Mesopotamia. They would have escaped God's judgment on sin. This was God's judgment on the uh, negative volition and the sinfulness of the antediluvian civilization. So if that were true, and you make a parallel to what Christ said uh, comparing the coming judgment at the end of the tribulation to the days of Noah, then you could say that the future judgment in the tribulation would only be a partial judgment. That's the point there. If the flood was local, then it would be a partial judgment. By analogy, that would mean the tribulation would also be partial and it would be no, really it would be no big deal. So if you reduce the flood to a local flood, it has implications for how you understand the tribulation. It destroys a concept of the tribulation, actually. Next, if the flood was local, God would have repeatedly broken his promise to never flood the earth again. I want you to think about that. If the flood was local, God would have repeatedly broken his promise to never flood the earth again. See, here's a little cartoon that expresses this. In the first pane, you have two men talking. The first guy says, look at that beautiful rainbow. It's a promise from God that he'll never again flood the entire earth as he did in Noah's day. And then the young man says, well, my Christian college professor said that Noah's flood didn't cover the entire earth. The next frame, these two guys continue their conversation. The older man says, he told you it was just a localized flood? And the young man says, that's what he said. Then the last pane you see that they're both sitting on top of a house, and it's completely surrounded by an inundated river, a local flood. And the one guy says, so he believes that God promised to never again send a localized flood? See, every time you see any kind of a flood that's local, that would be a violation of God's promise. So... God's promise was to never flood the entire earth. To be consistent with that, it must be a universal, a universal flood. Now let's look at some evidence. That's just sort of some, some, uh, evidence from logic, comparing the details of the text to, to what is said, and the necessity of having a universal flood in light of what's said in the text. Now let's look at some of the specific terminology. 
that's given in these verses. I don't have everything listed here, but I have enough to give you an idea. You can circle this, read through Genesis 6 through 9 at your own leisure and circle the key words. Genesis 6:11 says the earth was filled with violence, not just part of the earth, but all the earth. It's a universal problem. The earth is filled with violence. Genesis 6:12 all flesh was corrupted, not just those who lived in one specific locale. Genesis 6.13, the end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. This is universal terminology. Genesis 6.17, to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. Genesis 6.19, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark. This isn't limited local terminology. It is universal terminology. Now there are people who say that all doesn't mean all. It's just local, and we'll deal with that in just a minute. But I want you to sh- I want to just outline the argument here that the text says all, 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 every, every, every. Genesis 6:20. Every creeping thing of the ground, two of every kind, will come to you to keep them alive. Genesis 7:2. Every clean animal. By sevens, not just some, but every one. Uh, Genesis 7, 4, God says, I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Actually, the term Eretz there relates to the earth. I will blot out from the face of the earth every living thing that I have made. Genesis 7, 8, of clean animals and animals that are not clean, of birds and everything that creeps on the ground. Genesis 7, 11, all the fountains of the deep were open, not just those in the Mesopotamian area. Genesis 7:14, every beast and all the cattle, every creeping thing, and every bird. So again and again and again, the verbiage that's used emphasizes a universal flood. But the critics say the all doesn't mean all, every doesn't mean every. You know, we use it that way many times in our own language. It's used that way in Scripture. It says about every, all the people in Judea went out to see John the Baptist. Does that mean every single Jew lived in Judea went out to see John the Baptist? Probably not. That is just the way we talk sometimes. So let's, uh, let's give them the benefit of the doubt for the sake of argument this time. And all doesn't mean all, every doesn't mean every. Let's see if we can demonstrate a universal flood from other lines of reasoning. Well, first of all, let's look at what the text says in Genesis 7, 19 uh, to 20. There we read that the water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens, now we're just going to ignore that word everywhere for now, all the high mountains, we'll ignore all also, under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. Now here's the idea here. is When we look at this, the text says that the, that the water was 15 cubits higher than the mountains. That is approximately uh, 22 feet if you take the short cubit of about 18 inches or 17 inches, about a foot and a half. So uh, about 22 feet. Now, if we look at the argument, as I mean, at the evidence as explained in Genesis 7:11 and following, the ark lasted one year. From the time they went on the ark to the time the waters dried up, a year went by, three, uh, 12 months of 30, day, 30 days in each month, 360 days went by. So whatever the extent of the earth was, it went to a depth of 20, 
approximately 22 feet over every uh, hill on the earth. When you put together the, the depth of the water and the time uh, it was that high, you can only conclude that this could not have been a local flood. It would have to be a global flood based on the evidence of the time and the depth. Furthermore, second argument that we could use to show that the that that even if all doesn't mean all, you look at the ark's distinctive size and design and purpose, then it doesn't make sense that you have a vessel of that size that would take that long to construct to have a local flood. In fact, in the book uh, the Genesis flood, which is still one of the best analyses of the the biblical text and geology, one that I recommend anybody who's a who's a pastor or thinks they're going to study the word. In fact, I was had that book recommended to me when I was 14 years old, and I read it. And uh, I was a very average student. In fact, I never took biology in high school um, because I just was avoiding the sciences like a plague. But I read the Genesis flood for the first time when I was in about the ninth grade, and I know I read it at least one more time before I got out of high school, at least once in college and once in seminary. And it is a book that I think every uh, uh, highly recommend that every pastor ought to read at least once every three or four years because they have such phenomenal information and analysis there. It is the book uh, written by uh, John Whitcomb and Henry Morris that really changed history as far as the creationist argument is concerned. And in that book, they demonstrate that the volume of the ark was the equivalent of 522 railroad stock cars, and that if you were to take uh, uh, animals, average size animal of of the size of a sheep, and load them up on 522 stock cars, that you could get the equivalent amount of animals that you had on the ark in 100 stock cars. That would leave 422 extra. So there's plenty of room on the ark. Don't fall prey to these people who think that this was just some small little boat that they crammed a few animals on. This was a major undertaking analogous to intensive um, livestock farming, and it was a tremendous feat of engineering. In fact, I'll bring some of the details next week and uh, and mention some of the other studies that have been done to support that. So if you deny the words all, you still have three solid arguments. One, the time of the flood and its depth. Second, the size of the ark. And third, what Peter says in the New Testament. Let's look at Second Peter 3, 4, and 5. Here Peter is characterizing the taunts of the skeptics at the end time, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now, where would we hear a sentence like that? That is a perfect characterization of the uniformitarian doctrine of geology, that all things follow the same uh, process of deterioration today as they did uh, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, 100,000 years ago. All things continued as it was from the beginning of creation. And then Peter says, For when they maintain this, that is, the skeptics, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And there we see that word pair, heavens and the earth, that we saw in 
Genesis 1-1, and the heavens and the earth is equivalent to the universe. So he is saying the universe existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. And that is a reference to Noah's flood. In contrast, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So here in Second Peter 3, 4 through 7, Peter makes it clear that that the judgment that is coming is analogous to the water judgment that destroyed the antediluvian world. And he is uh, clearly interpreting the events of Genesis 6 through 8 as a cosmic cataclysm, a cosmic cataclysm, not just some small local, uh, local flood. Now, in conclusion, we need to ask the question, why was there a flood at all? Why did God have to destroy mankind? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that sin doesn't just affect us. We fall, I've emphasized this again and again. Sin doesn't just affect us in a sort of spiritual way. We have fallen prey to too much Greek thought, Greek philosophy that wants to separate the spiritual from the material. And so we think that when we sin, it just affects the spiritual realm. And yet I have shown from the fall of man in Genesis 3 that sin affects nature. You can't separate these two as if they're not interrelated and interconnected. Thus, just as sin brings divine uh, judgment on nature and changes nature, we also see throughout Scripture that nature is part of the way that God judges mankind and nature itself is affected. For example, nature is part of the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and nature is affected by Sodom and Gomorrah. The reason the Dead Sea is the Dead Sea and the reason you have uh, that, that uh, bleak landscape around the Dead Sea is because of the judgment of fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. Then you see nature as part of the judgment on the Egyptians and the uh, Exodus event, that nature brings this judgment on the Egyptians, but nature itself is also affected. You have animals that die as a result of that judgment on the Egyptians. Nature is also included at the time that Christ is judged for our sins. For example, there's an earthquake in Jerusalem, and there is darkness on the earth. So nature is part of the judgment that occurs at the time of Christ's uh, payment for our sins on the cross. And then in the tribulation, we'll see that nature is included in the judgments of the tribulation. The sun and the moon are darkened. Uh, the oceans turn to blood. Water turns bitter. All of these various things happen to nature in the in the midst of the uh, in the midst of the tribulation. Romans eight makes it clear that there is a connection between the creation and God's judgment. For Romans eight nineteen and following, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So 
the first point of why a flood is that there is a connection between man's sin and its effect on nature. God uses nature to judge mankind. Second point, it is a graphic visual aid of the necessity of cleansing and purification, just as there is a need for cleansing and purification at salvation. God had to cleanse and purify the world of its corruption. And then fourth, because of the uh, invasion of the sons of God, there is a need to start everything over, uh, wipe out what was there and to start everything over. So we will come back next time and begin our detailed study of Genesis chapter 6, starting at verse 9, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, to see we see the uh, historicity of the text, the importance of taking this at face value, that this is a literal event that happened in space-time history and an event that is uh, used by you to illustrate and demonstrate to us uh, many principles related to salvation, many principles related to your grace and the whole principle of judgment of sin and the need for cleansing and purification. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we've studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.